You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 156, The Early Naval War, Part 6, The Panzerschiff. This week, a big thank you goes out to Ian for the donation, and to Stephen, Jason, Landon, David, Daniel, Modern Penguin, Bob, William, and Jordan for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. You can find out more about becoming a member over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. When it comes to the rating of British commerce during the war, the first topic discussed is always U-boats. And it's true that the U-boats were very important as a weapon for the Kriegsmarine during the war. But there was another weapon that caused just as much concern in Britain before the war, surface raiders. Surface raiders presented a very real problem for the British and the French due to their longer range and their ability to move around the oceans, threatening merchant ships over a much wider area, especially when compared to pre-war U-boats. A major focus of this concern from the British and French were the German armored ships, or the Panzerschiff, which is a direct translation of armored ship. There were only three of them built during the 1930s, but they would be the focus of much of the concern before the start of the war. This episode begins a three-episode series discussing the Panzerschiff and the most famous ship of that class, the Admiral Graf Spee. The Graf Spee was named after Admiral Maximilian von Spee, who had led the China Squadron of the Imperial German Navy during the opening months of the First World War. At that time, Graf Spee led his small squadron across the Pacific and then defeated a British squadron at the Battle of Coronel before finally being overcome by the Royal Navy at the Battle of the Falkland Islands. If you would like to hear the entire story of the China Squadron and Admiral von Spee, you can go back to History of the Great War, episodes 48 and 49, that were released way back in 2015. The Second World War ship, the Admiral Graf Spee, its commander, Captain Hans Longsdorf, and its crew would be in for a similarly wild ride to what had happened back in 1914, sort of having a lot of fun running away from the British until eventually they couldn't anymore. But that'll be a few episodes from now. The story today begins with the Panzerschiff, or the Deutschland-class cruiser, if you want to be a bit more formal about it, which we won't be for the rest of this episode. It was an interesting project, driven mostly by the restrictions that Germany found itself under after the First World War. In the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was not allowed to build any capital ships, so no battleships and no battle cruisers. 
but they were allowed to build a few 10,000-ton cruisers. The 10,000-ton cruisers became enshrined in naval history due to the Washington Naval Treaty, which gave cruisers an upper limit of 10,000 tons, which most of the major navies would build up to and at times beyond during the 1920s and 30s. Germany would seek also to fit the Panzerschiff within that 10,000-ton limit, or at least come close enough that nobody would notice. In the end, the Panzerschiff would actually have a displacement of over 11,700 tons, but again, like, Germany was far from the only nation to miss that 10,000-ton target, even though they, they would claim to everybody who would listen that, that it was only 10,000 tons. But there were two major differences between the cruisers being built by other nations and the Panzerschiff. The first was the size of the guns. As part of the Washington Naval Treaty, the largest guns that signatory navies could place on cruisers were 8 inches, a decision not really based on what was best for a ship of 10,000 tons, but instead just the size of guns that were being mounted on cruisers after the First World War when the treaty was signed. Germany was not a signatory of the Washington Naval Treaty, though, and so they could take a step up, and instead of 8-inch guns, they would mount six 11-inch guns. This gave the German ships, theoretically, greater hitting power than any other cruisers that they might meet. The other major difference in the Panzerschiff design was the propulsion system. During the interwar years, almost all naval ships were powered by steam turbines, especially ships at the destroyer level and above, but the Panzerschiff would instead be propelled by eight diesel engines. There were major advantages to these diesel engines, the first being that they took up much less space, which allowed more space for other things on the ship. It should be noted that this reduction in size did not also result in a reduction in weight. It was just really just more weight packed into a smaller package. The second major advantage was the range that the diesel engines provided to the ship. The diesel engines required a higher grade of fuel than steam turbines, but they were able to turn that fuel into more power, or they were more efficient at turning it into power. This meant that the Panzerschiff had a range of around 10,000 nautical miles, when contemporary British cruisers were hovering around the 5,500 nautical mile range. Now this was really good, more range is good, but there were some downsides. The first was that the displacement of the ship, when combined with the power provided by the diesels, resulted in a top speed of only 27 knots. This was much faster than many capital ships, but was slower than British treaty cruisers of the Leander class, which were entering service when the Panzer ships were being built. Later generations of British cruisers would only get faster, and this would be a major part of the story of the Graf von Spee when it found itself in the South Atlantic in 1939. The second major problem was that the diesel engines were complicated, and they had reliability problems. This is one of the reasons that diesel engines were not pursued for large ships by other navies at this time. For all the downsides of steam turbines, they, they were big, they didn't have a great efficiency, they were at least a very mature and reliable technology. Steam turbines had first been introduced into large naval vessels in the early years of the 20th century, and by the early 1930s, they were more efficient and reliable than ever. They were very, very reliable. The German designers would decide to go with their riskier diesel engines, taking the increased range in size and sort of just risking the reliability. The Graf Spee would be the last of the Deutschland-class ships built, and so it had a few changes over its predecessors, but nothing that, that was huge. They would, and it would be completed in 1933 to enter service in 1936. 
1938, it would go through a minor refit, with the most important change being the addition of a radar and an improved rangefinder. The Graf's Bay was then scheduled for a major refit in late 1939, which would have resulted in some changes to the bow to improve her seakeeping, along with a list of other changes and improvements, but that would of course not happen. The plan for the Panzerschiff, in case of war with Britain, was to launch them on commerce raiding expeditions at the start of the conflict. But even with the range provided by the diesel engines, there needed to be some way to resupply the ships while they were at sea. And to accomplish this, the German Navy would build four fleet auxiliary ships in 1937. These ships were specifically designed to assist and support the Panzerschiff on their raiding expeditions, with the Altmark being the ship that would accompany the Graf's Bay. The goal of the Kriegsmarine was to have these supply ships already at sea when the war started, to prevent them from being captured or destroyed by the Royal Navy. And so, on July 27th, the Altmark began to take on cargo to prepare for the possibility of a war. It was able to store enough supplies to keep both itself and the Graf's Bay at sea for three months, and that clock would start to tick on August 5th, when it exited the North Sea through the English Channel. The Altmark then made for Port Arthur in the United States, where it was able to get 9,400 tons of diesel fuel, which would obviously be important for those diesel engines that we just talked about. After topping up its fuel tanks, the Altmark would then make its way to its first rendezvous position with the Graf's Bay, which had also left Germany before the start of the war. While not everything would go to plan for the Panzerschiff, the Altmark and her sister ships would perform very well and would prove to be a real sort of success story when it came to German commerce raiders. The system wasn't perfect. There, there were challenges, like the length of time it took to reprovision the ships while at sea, but the concept would prove itself. The two ships would meet on September 1st, and they would conduct their first replenishment at that time. The Graf Spey had received orders on August 15th to make ready to put to sea, out of concern that a war was about to begin. Longsdorf, on board the Graf's Bay, would receive the orders on August 17th, and the ship would immediately be put into dry dock for a bit of quick cleaning. Then on the 21st, the Graf's Bay would leave Wilhelmshaven with as much secrecy as possible. The mission given to Longsdorf was to sail into the South Atlantic, and once he arrived there, and the war had started, begin a trade war against British shipping. At the same time, the first panzer ship that was completed, the Deutschland, would perform the same type of raiding in the North Atlantic, hopefully spreading the strength of the Royal Navy out along the entire length of the Atlantic Ocean. Both ships were under orders to avoid open confrontations with Royal Navy warships and to instead focus solely on British trade ships. The orders given to Longsdorf even cautioned against engaging decidedly inferior Royal Navy ships, out of concern that even in such an advantageous situation, something might occur that would endanger the ability of the Graf Spey to continue its primary mission. You know, even smaller ships sometimes got lucky with shell hits. The Graf Spey had the advantage of the wide expanses of the South Atlantic in its mission, where the risk of being spotted by aircraft or Royal Navy patrols was very slim due to the lack of military vessels in the area when compared to the patrol area that Longsdorf could take advantage of. Longsdorf would be able to take advantage of the situation over the course of the next several months of raiding, as he was able to attack shipping on both sides of the Atlantic, and even into the Indian Ocean, with only a few radio distress calls from his victims that were able to kind of give the British information about the Graf Spey's location. The Graf Spey and the Altmark would sail together for a few days at the start of December before news arrived via radio that war had been declared between Germany and Britain, 
which meant that the Graf Spee's mission began in earnest. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. One of the challenges faced by the Graf Spee and the Deutschland during the early weeks of the war were the very restrictive rules of engagement placed upon them by Hitler and the German government. For the first few weeks of the war, there was still hope in Berlin that if Poland could be defeated quickly, before any open fighting broke out between Germany and Britain and France, then maybe the Western nations could be brought to the negotiating table. To keep open this possibility, a very restrictive set of engagement rules were placed on any attacks against commerce from both surface ships and U-boats. The challenges presented to the two surface ships was mostly around what would happen the instant they hit their first merchant ships. Any action was destined to be met with a response by the British, so it was felt to be critical that when the first merchant ship was captured or sunk, it had to be at a time when the Panzerschiff were ready to begin full commerce raiding activities. Otherwise, it would just be a waste, because the expectation was that the ships would eventually either be attacked or forced back to Germany at some point after they started operations. These restrictions and concerns resulted in a delay in the true beginning of actual commerce raiding until September 23rd, 20 days after the war had been declared. It would only be on that day that Raider was able to convince Hitler that it was critical to unleash the Deutschland and the Graf Spee. Otherwise, they were just burning through supplies for no purpose, and they would eventually have to return to Germany, having achieved nothing. With the invasion of Poland coming to a conclusion, and with little prospect of Britain or France entering into negotiations, the order was sent on the 26th of September for the ships to really get going with their operations. They would receive an order that said, quote, commence commerce warfare against France and England in defined areas according to operational orders, Deutschland in the North Atlantic, Graf Spee in the South. Radio silence, but report position and intentions if in contact with enemy warships or if reported by merchant shipping. End quote. Along with these new operational orders, the latest possible intelligence was forward to both of the ships. For the Graf Spee, the most important part of this information was the presence of seven Royal Navy cruisers in its area of operation, four off the South American coast and three off the coast of Africa, along with a collection of destroyers, submarines, and smaller ships. These reports were mostly correct, 
although there were only two British cruisers off the African coast. Along with these intelligence reports, another set of orders would arrive on September 29th via radio, which included this quote, At the present time, England needs successes. Any gain of prestige by England is therefore undesirable. On the other hand, attacks on shipping by Panzerschiff are to be carried out to the fullest extent. The restrictions of Panzerschiff operations to specific areas is hereby cancelled. These new orders basically told the captains of both the Deutschland and the Graf Spee, happy hunting, but to be careful to avoid providing the Royal Navy and the British government with any kind of victory. Before the podcast spends the next two and a half episodes on the adventures of the Admiral Graf Spee, it is worth taking just a moment to discuss the adventures of the Deutschland, the other panzer ship which would be positioned to begin commerce raiding at the start of the war. The Deutschland was commanded by Captain Vinnaker and was accompanied by the supply ship Westfold with the goal of commerce raiding in the North Atlantic. Much like the Graf Spee, the Deutschland's freedom of operation would be severely curtailed during the first month of the war, and it would not be until October 5th that it would stop its first freighter, the Stonegate, east of Bermuda. Then, four days later, the American freighter City of Flint was intercepted and captured, a prize crew was placed aboard the ship, and it was then sent off to Europe, although it would eventually be interned in Norway. After this second ship was spotted and dealt with, the weather would not cooperate with the Deutschland, and it would not be until the 14th of October that another ship would be spotted, and eventually sank. This ship was the Norwegian freighter Lorentz W. Hansen. After the 14th, the weather once again deteriorated, and it would continue that way for two weeks. Then, on October 28th, orders arrived for the ship to head back to Germany, at least partially out of concern that the bad weather would continue making further efforts untenable as the northern Atlantic moved into winter. The ship would transit the Denmark Strait and arrive back in Germany on November 17th. It was really a pretty disappointing first war cruise for the Deutschland, having sank just two ships and captured another, while also precipitating several international diplomatic incidents due to the ships that were sank and captured being American and Norwegian. It would be around this time that the Deutschland was renamed the Lutzau, apparently due to the fact that Hitler was concerned about the public relations nightmare that would have been caused by a ship named Deutschland, or Germany, being sunk by enemy action. While the Deutschland was not being as successful as hoped in the North Atlantic, for most of September, the Graf Spee would spend its time just existing in the South Atlantic, scrupulously avoiding any Royal Navy ships. The closest call would come on September 11th, when the Arado float plane that the cruiser carried was doing a routine patrol while the Graf Spee resupplied from the Altmark. While on patrol, the float plane spotted two ships, one of which it believed was a British cruiser, which seemed to abruptly change course to a course that would bring it directly into contact with the Graf Spee. As soon as this news was relayed to Longsdorf, he made the decision to abort the resupply which was underway and leave the scene as quickly as possible. The Arado was right about one thing. The ship was a British cruiser, the HMS Cumberland, but it did not know that the Graf Spee was in the area. Instead, the abrupt change in course that it did was simply a routine change in direction, as the ship was zigzagging in standard anti-submarine protocol. The Cumberland was en route to join the cruiser squadrons of Commodore Henry Harwood, which were currently patrolling off the South American coast. Harwood already had access to two Leander-class cruisers, the Ajax and Achilles, which were in the Falkland Islands, and the York-class cruiser, the Exeter, which would be combined with the Cumberland to make Force G. All of the British cruisers were, by themselves, 
outgunned by the German cruiser, mounting guns no larger than 8 inches. But their 6 and 8 inch guns were still more than capable of damaging the German ship in a gun duel, which would accomplish their goals just as well as sinking it, because the goal was to prevent it from continuing its commerce rating. Sinking was sort of an ancillary goal. These ships were also just the beginning of the ships that would be sent to hunt down the Graf Spey, with six total groups put together to patrol various areas of the South Atlantic. Each of these groups was built around two cruisers due to the recognition that in a single duel, the British cruisers would have some problems with the Graf Spey. These hunting groups were part of a wider strategy for the British when dealing with the Panzerschiff at the start of the war. In the Northern Atlantic, the focus was around using Royal Navy ships to protect convoys, with, for example, the aircraft carriers Furious and Ark Royal working in conjunction with the battle cruisers Repulse and Renown to provide convoy protection, along with many other less powerful groups of ships. Over the course of the last months of 1939, as the Panzerschiff did their raiding and their positioning changed, the hunting groups in the Atlantic would also change, with, for example, the aircraft carrier Ark Royal and the Renown being sent further south due to the actions of the Graf Spey. While this would prove to be an effective response to the threat posed by the German ships in the early months of the war, it was also kind of exactly what the Germans were hoping for. The dispatch of so many cruisers and capital ships to guard merchant shipping spread the Royal Navy out, reducing their overall strength in the North Sea and in the Mediterranean. Because this was all according to German plans, Longsdorf was well aware that he would have to spend most of his time dodging British ships that were hunting for him, and so before heading off to his first hunting grounds, which would be off the South American coast, he would put in place a bit of deception. Longsdorf would make some fake modifications to his ship so that it appeared to look like the Admiral Scheer, the second ship of the Deutschen class, or at least he hoped it would look that way from a distance. Even though they were both Panzerschiff, there were slight differences to some of the upper works, the kinds of changes that often happen even within ships of the same class. Some painting work was also done. This was done to try and sow some confusion and hopefully make it unclear exactly how many German ships were operating in the South Atlantic. This would actually work for some time, and if you look at British communications over the next two months as the Graf Spey is hunting down its merchant victims, there is some confusion about which exact ship is loose in the area, especially when there were reports from the RAF that they had hit the Admiral Scheer in a bombing raid in port on September 5th, and yet here it was in the South Atlantic. The British were concerned that if the Admiral Scheer had managed to slip out of the North Sea, which, which was completely possible, then they had three Panzerschiff to deal with instead of two. With the disguise in place, on September 30th, the first victim of the Graf Spey would come into sight. This was the 5,000-ton Clement, a British merchant ship on its way to Bahia, Brazil. The Graf Spey's Arado floatplane was in the air, and when it had firmly established the name of the ship and that it was British, the floatplane launched its own attack by shooting up the steamer's bridge with its machine guns. The Clement would stop while the radio officer on board started to transmit the RRR signal, which included the Clement's position, identifying information about the ship, and that it was being attacked by a German surface ship. This was a pre-arranged signal that every British ship was supposed to send out when it came under attack, as a way of quickly and concisely notifying any British ships in range of what was happening so they could relay the message if nobody else received it. As the Graf Spey approached, the captain of the Clement gave the order to abandon ship, and all of the crew made it into lifeboats. The captain and the chief engineer were then brought on board the Graf Spey, 
at which point they saw that there were embossed letters on the quarterdeck that appeared to be painted over, which said it was the Admiral Shear, which was exactly what Longsdorf had planned, and now he had a carrier for that deception. When the captain met with Longsdorf, the German said in English, I'm sorry, Captain, but I have to sink your ship. We are, you see, at war. Longsdorf would then order two torpedoes to be fired at the Clement, but neither of the torpedoes exploded. Although it's unclear whether they just missed or they failed to explode, early war German torpedoes were notorious for not exploding. With the failure of the torpedoes, Longsdorf switched tactics and ordered that the main guns fire on the ship at point-blank range. It would take five shells to sink the Clement. While it was good that the Graf Spey had made its first kill, the failure of the torpedoes and the need to resort to the wastage of main armament ammunition was not a great way to start the campaign. The merchant seamen were offloaded onto another passing merchant ship that would offload them at a nearby port, with the news making it back to Britain that they had been sunk by the Admiral Shear, not the Graf Spey. This caused some serious confusion in London, which was again exactly the point. The next victim to fall into the hands of the Graf Spey would be the British tramp steamer Newton Beach, which the Graf Spey would encounter on October 5th. When it became clear that the Graf Spey was bearing down on them, the crew of the Newton Beach attempted to destroy some important papers, but failed. And this provided good information to Longsdorf for his further raiding. One of the most important pieces of information were the general routing plans that had been provided to all British ships by the Royal Navy. This was essentially a highway map for British merchant ships at sea. Several items would also be taken from the Newton Beach to resupply the Graf Spey, which would be a common theme over the following weeks of raiding. It could be as simple as some extra food, or as important as critical supplies, depending on the ship in question. For example, on the next ship attacked by the Graf Spey, the Ashley, a good amount of sugar and potatoes were transferred over to the Graf Spey before it was destroyed with scuttling charges. The crew of the Ashley were loaded onto the Newton Beach, which was manned by a prize crew specifically to follow the Graf Spey around to house captured crew and stores. The usage of the Newton Beach in this way seemed like a good plan. Sort of having a place to put these prisoners was always a good idea. But it was not long after the sinking of the Ashley that the plan was abandoned, and all the prisoners were moved over to the Graf's Bay and the ship destroyed, again with explosive charges to conserve ammunition. This was mostly done because the Newton Beach was really slow, and Longsdorf was just tired of waiting for it. Over the course of only around a week, the Graf's Bay had been able to sink four British merchant ships off the South American coast, and the Graf Spey's rampage was really only just beginning. 